Hey everybody, I'm Micah Rich. And I'm Olivia Kane. And welcome to the Weekly Typographic. A podcast where we discuss our favorite type and design news from the week. Wow, shoot, we're back! Hi, we, Olivia. We have returned. Hello? Welcome <laughs> everybody to season two. That's our name we're given this. <laughs> yeah, even though I don't think we're going to really have any designation of seasons. Yeah, it's, it'll just be season two and forever. It's, it's <laughs> fun to be back. We've been talking about this for like so, so, so long. So long, guys. Last time we recorded was June 2018. Oh, Lots of You changed. had to put the date in there. Make me feel awful about <laughs> it. <laughs> it's okay. It's been a two-year hiatus. Yeah. Also, so much has changed. Yeah, I mean, so, so much, much has changed in the past few months, but also in our lives. But I'm sure uh, a lot of fine type nerds out there realize we've rebooted the weekly typographic. We've been doing that since November every mm -hmm. week, which has been really fun. Mm -hmm. And that has led to the league membership, which is like extra content that you're getting every week, like cool font finds that we're adding in if you're a paying member and weekly jobs in the newsletter too. So like the newsletter is becoming the heart of the league lately which is really awesome and really fun so we were like shoot we got to get back on this podcast game that was so fun yeah and especially now i think people in the design community are just being extra innovative and i know you know we're a podcast so this is going to date it a little bit but it's currently may in covid times mm. so the articles are you know i actually think there's only one that's covid related others We've been trying not to harp on it too much because it's been taking so much attention and reasonably it's a global pandemic, but you don't have to focus on it 100% of the time. So we've been trying to find cool links that are helpful and interesting and educational and stuff that are outside of that. Totally. And we have some really fun stuff this week. We also are introducing a new segment called Nerd Alert. Every week I will be researching a super nerdy type topic to discuss that I've done some research on ahead of time. This week is going to be on why we have italics and where they came from. A brief history of the origination of italics into <laughs> our world, which is very unexpected and fun and nerdy. Um, and I'll bring it back to how they relate to, you know, modern typefaces existing that we use today. So. Yeah, I'm excited to, to dive into that at the end. It's going to be fun. We, you know, we're going to try to keep the podcast. We always kind of kept it to about 20 minutes. We're going to try to keep it to like 25, 30 minutes with this sweet new segment, just so it's still listenable. Totally, um, totally. Um, are you ready to get into it? I'm so ready. Let's do it. Okay, so our, our first link in the newsletter this week, and you can follow along at home, is actually our fun friends over at Super High. Uh, so Super High is like a cool online school, basically, that teaches a lot of coding, a lot of design, some project management stuff, and they're really down to earth and, and cool. And so we reached out to them to see if they wanted to sponsor the newsletter. And they were like, shoot, we just launched this experimental typography for the web course that we feel like people would be into. And it's like, it's all the kind of stuff where like you see a cool animation on a website and you're like, how the heck did they do that? Like it's it's not diving super deep into coding stuff from scratch. I don't think you even really need to be a strong coder to get into it. They kind of describe what you need, you know, on the page or whatever, but it's neat because it's like basically, oh, that's a neat animation. How can I make stuff like that? And I feel like we, we come across that kind of stuff all the time. 
Yeah, um, I've definitely looked into this course before Super High became a sponsor mm. and am very interested in taking it at some point when I find some time. So yeah, check it out. I'm super excited. Super High is partnering with us. I actually have one of their books, Learn to Code Now, and I found it super useful. So that kind of leads us to the bigger conversation that we are looking for sponsors um, yeah. for the newsletter, for the podcast, you know, companies that want visibility. I think, Micah, you're a little bit more familiar with kind of like our numbers for the newsletter, right? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, we, we're happy to talk numbers with anybody who's interested. But basically, like, we, we're all type lovers here. And so, you know, like if, if anybody works for somebody or wants to kind of get the word out on their product or service or something like that, we're definitely looking for sponsors. So just reach out to us. Our email's all over the site and you can just email us and we can have a chat. Yay, new friends, exciting yeah. stuff. Okay, so diving into the other articles that we have featured in the newsletter. Our first one is a really cool project called Hashtag Combat COVID. Kind of our articles from Poster House, but this project is kind of a you know, collaboration between Poster House, which is a poster museum kind of newer in New York City, and Print Magazine are kind of leading it. And they're partnering with a bunch of um, New York City digital screens and billboard companies like Link NYC, JC Deco, um, and several others to kind of get really well-designed by famous designer posters kind of out in the world, out in the streets, they're COVID related, but they're all kind of have their own little touch of whimsy and style. And, you know, they're really exciting for people that are kind of walking down the street and want to see something new. But there's a really great gallery that's featured on this page as well. And they have lots of celebrity designers that have contributed to this project, including Milton Glaser, Jessica Hish, Seymour Quast, Paula Scher. I mean, those are some of the top, top people. And so we were really excited to share this. And it, I think it's just really great inspiration to see how, you know, our celebrity designers are tackling the issue at hand and how everyone's interpreting it in a different ways. And honestly, even if you, if you like, I'm, I'm not super into the seriousness of it. Obviously we're in a serious thing, but like I saw this webpage and I was like, this is just neat to see how many different designers design something for the same theme. Yeah. Like, it's and just a cool example of, like, everybody doing it creatively, and it's neat to see it all in one spot. They have young designer, old young designers and older designers, letterers. Like you said, older. That's very thoughtful. Yeah. Well, you know, I looked up a couple of things. Seymour Quast and Milton Glaser, who are some of, like, the icons of graphic design. Seymour Quast is 88 years old, and Milton Glaser is 90 years old, and they're making these posters. I am very impressed. That's awesome super cool to see them still coming up with new work even though they've created much of the big graphic design archive that exists in textbooks so, yeah so that was a cool find you found that that's cool yeah super excited to share the next article you found i believe actually um, our our buddy hughes who has been helping me with the newsletter found oh, this one. Oh, shout out he's hughes. kind of always on the hunt for uh for cool stuff to the that people would like to add oh. to the newsletter this one's definitely cool. It's a list of online meetups that are helping the creative community. I know I've been relying on virtual events to still stay connected and still stay up to date on, you know, design, the design world and design people and what's happening out there. So I'm all for, you know, any virtual way to stay connected. 
the list is mostly different Slack groups for various creatives doing different things. So some of them will be actively sharing work. Some of them do portfolio reviews, talk about projects, share more emotions, possibly like fears and hopes for, you know, the pandemic times. One of them had a hackathon. So each of the groups are actually slightly different for different creatives. Um, some are for illustrators, some are for developers, but I definitely think this is a great resource and I'm definitely going to be looking into them as the time goes on. Yeah, this was cool too, because I hadn't heard of any of these. Like I've heard of lots of, there've been a bunch popping up and there's a lot that are like kind of well known or just ones that have come across my radar. And literally all of these were new to me. Yeah, totally. I'm part of a Slack channel for Ladies Get Paid, which is an awesome organization connecting women around the country. And, you know, all sorts of things are discussed there. Finance, jobs, gigs, freelancing. And I found it a really great way to connect to other people in my community. So I think this is a great opportunity. Word. Cool, cool. And so <laughs> moving right along, we have the Type and Media website showcase. And so kind of some background for people that are not familiar with Type and Media. They are a master's program at the Royal Academy of Art at The Hague. So that's in the Netherlands. Yeah. Yeah. And so all of the students have gallery pages for the typefaces they designed in this program they are doing type design and it's pretty intense i have one of my friends is actually featured in this web page ethan cohen who i have taken calligraphy classes with here in new york city before he moved to berlin but just some really great stuff you know you have some workhorse revivals of a little bit more traditional type design and also some kind of breaking the boundaries is featured as well. It's a fun website and I definitely think it's really good inspiration for anyone that's looking into type design or is working on a typeface right now. Did you personally have a favorite of any of these? Like I thought they were all good obviously and they're all basically like type designers to keep an eye on because they're about to do amazing things after graduating. Absolutely. I did have a favorite. <laughs> it was, was it? Michelangelo Nigra, I believe. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. He's from Italy. He had just like some really, really crazy italics. Incredibly slanted, probably like more than 15 degrees, which is, I think is closer to the standard for slant and italics, and very calligraphy-based work. And so mm -hmm. I, I veer towards that. How about you? Did you have a favorite? I really loved Anya Danilova which I, I assume is also how you pronounce that. She made this typeface called Brizak, which is on here. And it's like cut out letters. It looks kind of like, uh, like, you know, you used to like carve to screen print. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like and it looks kind of like a prints? digital. Yeah, like linoleum. It's like mm -hmm. a digital version of that. And it's like real chunky and kind of off kilter in a bunch of different ways. I just thought it was real like tons of personality. I mean, I, I loved so many of these. Mm -hmm. I was just like, dang, that one's crazy. I want to use that giant. Yeah, I think there's so many strong ones. And not only that, but a lot of them came with really interesting concepts. I know Ethan's at least, he was listening to music from a specific era the whole time when he was designing it. So mm. I think the concepts behind a lot of them are really fascinating and definitely worth looking. I also love that they included sketches, which- Yeah, um, like behind the scenes. Yeah, that stuff's so good. And you know, I always find so motivating and inspirational because you see these beautiful polished typefaces, but you know, there's only rare instances when you see kind of the work and I, I capital W work <laughs> that goes behind <laughs> how to make them all. 
And it's cool too because each of these like is about a person and they link on the page to their social media. So like I can start following some of these people. See what yeah. And Micah is like not joking. I'm sure these people are going to be working for foundries or be working independently and creating typefaces that, you know, we might be seeing more in the public in the coming years. For sure. So great stuff. I know that's being passed around a lot in the design community and definitely deserves all the merit that it's been receiving. Next article is a fun one. <laughs> and I'll be completely honest, I was not excited to read this article. Really? That's shocking to me. I thought it was going to be really dry. It was not. <laughs> I've, <laughs> I was mistaken. This article is called Text for Proofing Fonts, and it's written by Jonathan Heffler of the infamous Heffler & Co. type foundry. <laughs> yep. Yeah, it's hard to miss, miss him in the, you know, type design history course, <laughs> if anyone's Which, thinking. I mean, yeah, like, basically, Heffler & Co. Is, is one of the top type places in the world. And I gotta admit, like, at first I was drawn in by the illustration. There's like this cute illustration mm -hmm. of a zoo of Camp Pangram, which is cute. And then I was like, dang, this is like a beautifully set Mm -hmm. blog post like the, the way the typography is set just reading it I'm like oh this is like reading a beautiful book which mm -hmm. is rare on the web you know yeah I mean the, I, I I was not surprised it was so beautifully typeset but again it is like something quite special and and his domain is typography.com so he was kind of ahead of the <laughs> you know dot-com era and kind of knew where everything was heading ahead of his time, I guess. Tell us about, about what you learned in this mm -hmm. detail. There's, there's some great stuff. So first, he kind of talks about the issues with pangrams, which if anyone doesn't know what a pangram is, it's a sentence that contains each letter of the alphabet at least once. So that um, is the quick brown fox jumps over the lazy dog. And, you know, you would think that people would test out typefaces using pangrams because, hey, there's every letter of the alphabet. So I can see what each letter of, you know, my type design looks like in a sentence. He actually like debunks this and talks about why there are issues trying to test out your fonts using pangrams. And he uses the word proofing and so I'm not sure if everyone knows what proofing is. It's a really specific process for type designers. And it's basically part of the type design process where you test the viability of the letter forms and the spacing to make sure that things will look good and, you know, coherent once you put all the letters together after you design them individually. So he kind of talks about the proofing process, but he had some interesting things to say about understanding language to understand how to proof a typeface. And so he says that pangrams don't accurately reflect the distribution of letters in languages. So for example, a pangram uses, you know, each letter of the alphabet in like a short sentence. But in reality, letters like an E account for one eighth of what we read. So one eighth okay. of, the, of the letters that we see are actually an E. So like you would think that that should actually show up more when you're testing out a typeface. And then there's letters like a Z, which appears once every 1,111 letters. <laughs> Wait, say that again. So a Z, and this is, this is in the English language, I'll preface. Yeah. But a Z appears once every 1,111 letters. Dang, that's wild. Yeah. Well, I mean, it makes sense, but like uh, weird to have such detail about that fact. But that's why they're worth so much when you play Scrabble. I mean, <laughs> right, 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 it all right. makes sense. And now whenever you're playing Scrabble, you can let someone know 
this, this really fun fact. I think <laughs> it's very fun. And so, and, and then, you know, the other issue with that is, you know, the E and the Z case is only something that references the English language. There's other languages, for example, in Dutch, J is 10 times more popular than it is in English. Mm. So you should be using proofs that kind of have a J that is more frequent. And so the issue with pangrams is that it has a quote unquote forced distribution of exotics. And when he talks about exotics, he's talking about, you know, letters that are used less frequently. And so he actually provides the proofs that he has designed from hand. He's, you know, kind of he does he explains the really mechanical technical details upon how he designed this proof and how he chose you know a set of words to test his type designs on and his proofs are available in a downloadable pdf so any type designer that's looking for some new proofs to use i know i used to proof when i did type design it's a really important part of the process he has them available for download which i think is really great yeah i noticed too that it's not just a pdf but it's also in a github repo Oh, I see. So like you can actually go get the text that you could use in text, you know, like obviously a PDF set in his font is not going to be useful for your proofing your font. Uh, and so you want the actual raw text to be able to like copy and paste. Um, and they included both in the GitHub repo, <clears throat> which, you know, presumably you could fork and it's, it's under Creative Commons. So like you're allowed to share it. And a repo is a repository, correct? Yeah, that's just, uh, you know, technical nerd speak for like, here's a folder that that has versioning on it, like mm -hmm. a history for changes and stuff and lives on github.com, if you're not familiar with that. We're, we're all going to be learning here. I know Mike has taught me everything I know about GitHub. <laughs> so I'm just making sure that our audience that may not know as much. No, it's a good point. It's a good point. So that's super exciting. I was surprised by how much I actually learned from that article and how helpful I found it. So yeah, that was really cool. Very cool stuff. And so the next article I'm very excited about, I have a little bit of a story as well. It's on the Letterform Archive, which you know is an institution over in San Francisco that is actually a really large archive of different printed ephemera, different type specimens, calligraphy, lettering, anything that's a letter form. So that's like calligraphy, lettering, and typeface, typefaces is, you know, there's a whole archive of different ephemera throughout the years there. I guess that that's basically what it is. <laughs> yeah, I feel like, like they describe it as like 1,500 objects and 9,000 hi-fi images and like use the word ephemera. And like, to me, it's basically like, here's a visual archive of graphic design, mm -hmm. right? And typefaces and fonts. Yeah, so at the actual physical archive, which is a place in San Francisco, they have over 60,000 objects. But what's really exciting is they have finally released their online archive in April, and that includes 1,500 objects. So yes, it is only 2.5% of their total <laughs> archive, but it's really, rich material and earlier this week I joined the type directors club and letterform archive for a tour of how to use their online archive and I can just say I'm incredibly impressed. I think you guys should all check it out. There's something there for everybody interested in different kinds of design. They have they even have calligraphy and lettering and typeface design. It's not just posters or packaging. It's 
everything. They have mechanicals for people that show the process of how to design a book cover, where it still has their Pantone selections and stuff like that. It's really detailed stuff. The images taken of each item in there are incredibly high fidelity. It's unreal, the details they get. And so also, when you look at the archive, the thumbnails of them aren't just in a traditional grid. The thumbnails are masked out to follow the edge of each object. So if there's a torn corner on a poster, you're going to see that edge. If there's, you know, a big poster next to small packaging, the packaging will look a little bit smaller. So it kind of feels more like you're with the object in real life because that's what it would be like if you visited the letter form archive. That is um, shockingly data... detailed. What the heck? That's oh, nuts. In incredibly so. And even when you open an object, I know I was looking at a, a calligraphy manual on how to do italic handwriting because that's right up my alley. <laughs> and so while there's 1,500 objects, there's actually 9,000 images. So I'll open up a book and I can look through every single page of it. And they archived the Amigre magazines by Susanna Lichko and Rudy Vanderlands, which was like the, you know, the apex of 90s graphic design. And they have each page of the magazine archive. So it's really powerful, really amazing. These people are doing really great stuff. I want them to release more objects <laughs> so I can just sit there all day <laughs> and see what they have. But um, I just really had to give a plug for them. They're doing really great work. I think it's great tool for professionals and students alike. I think it's cool that you like took a virtual tour because I, I have looked at this before and I think the interface gets more and more clear the deeper you get into it. But like when you mm -hmm. first look at the online archive, you're kind of like, oh, they have like 20 things. Mm -hmm. But that's really just that it's like they've featured those 20 things. You go into the search and suddenly you realize, oh, there's like a lot of detail around what country I'm interested in, mm -hmm. what format, like look up pamphlets or stationery or shopping bags. Mm -hmm. They categorize by like discipline, like engraving, advertising, comics, even people. And they're all kind of like you can search by decade. And each of those things is sort of like a thing you can click on and keep on to filter so that you can search even more detailed or just like browse from looking at one of those things. Like, you know, just randomly clicking around. Oh, look, some Arabic typography from 1150, the year 1150 scanned at high resolution just because I'm like randomly browsing around. It's wild. It, and it looks kind of underwhelming at first but once you get into it and start looking around and realizing how it works there's like crazy amount of stuff you can find it's so cool absolutely and if you can imagine you know there is a crazy amount but again it's only 2.5 percent of the collection yeah. so i think the more eyes that we that we get on letter form archive the more people are supporting it like the more they frankly said the more they can be scanning and you know giving back to the world and so i'm really excited to you know kind of follow their efforts here they also made a really fun project where they made virtual backgrounds for zoom using images in the archive so you can go on their website and find those i already changed the background to my ipad to um, a really fun bookcase of all the things in the archive but they're just doing really good stuff and you know i'm really excited to share our findings from them yeah i think i've been uh meaning to look into them for a long time and really haven't so i'm glad you kind of brought it up yeah 
very excited about it. And so on the other end of the spectrum, <laughs> our next article is about Framer, which I'm just going to let you take away. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so like uh, a lot of people at this point, you know, probably listening know, well, everybody knows Photoshop and Illustrator and like the Adobe Suite and a bunch of other digital design apps have come up and gotten popular in the last few years. Sketch is one of them. Like a lot of interface designers started using Sketch and then Framer came out, which was kind of crazy because everything was in a browser and mm. collaborative and real time. And so a lot of people have been moving over to Framer or, or sorry, uh, Figma. My mistake is what I'm talking about. Got it. And then like Framer came out roughly at the same time and it was sort of more for mobile app prototypes. And the difference was like Figma was like a straight design tool, right? Mm -hmm. And Framer worked in code, which you didn't, it was, you didn't necessarily have to know code. Like it was uh, an app where you could kind of drag and drop and it would generate code, but make mm -hmm. those prototypes for apps interactive. Like you would click on things, switches would toggle, pages would animate, that kind of stuff. And I've been watching Framer for a while because their animation library has like been ported to the web and they've been working on it so that it's honestly very magical. And it's like, you basically say, you know, here's two totally unrelated objects in mm -hmm. on different screens. And then you run the prototype and it magically animates between them without any code or work. And they had this like big crazy announcement very recently where they also brought Framer to the web so that you don't need to download an app anymore. It works in nice. the browser. Nice. It's also collaborative, just like Figma, mm -hmm. but it's like so wildly useful for prototyping apps, partially because of the animation, but partially because it like generates actual usable code. Like oh. the whole thing is basic. It's like a visual design software where you're just designing the interface by drawing boxes and stuff, but it outputs like usable React code. Oh, cool. That's Which if you know really React, that's like, uh, if you don't know React, I guess it's it's a very popular like JavaScript framework that basically Facebook runs on React. Mm, so like mm -hmm. for the ability to make your prototypes the same as the code that you would put in the final product is kind of wild. And, you know, I also thought it was awesome. Like, I've you know, I've played with it here and there, but it's also awesome because this is the first time that, as far as I know, like there's a, free account like you used to be able to get a trial you mm. can play with it but now it's like you know you get a couple projects free forever which is awesome i love that i'm also noticing and i do think this is a conversation for another time but one of their marketing collateral shows new morphism have you heard of the idea of new morphism <laughs> yeah i guess i assume it's <laughs> pronounced Noiamorphism, but I've never actually heard anybody say it out loud. <laughs> We're going to investigate this. But neomorphism is like the 2.0 of skewmorphism, which is like kind of an outdated look at like UI, UX look and feel that we all kind of remember from like 2007. Anyways, I'd like to look into this and find out the history and like bring that under. Like, There's a lot of articles about that. We can try to find one for next week. Yeah, I'm very excited to see that. And learning this new term has made me pretty pumped to use <laughs> it. 
Okay, cool. So, yeah, so that's uh, that's the cool links that we found this week. And uh, I'm excited because this now means we get to jump into the nerd alert section. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's going to be super nerdy, <laughs> but really fun. Um, I'm trying not to make it too long, but I did a lot of research on this. And I'm excited to share what I found. So for this first one, I wanted to go back to, you know, one of my favorite loves of type design italics and there's so much we could talk about with italics but i kind of want to talk about where they came from and why we have them and there's kind of a juicy backstory to that which i love (laughs) i actually first tried to research this when i was trying to design an italic counterpart to typeface i was already designed the roman part two oh i Um, remember Yeah, and so I was trying to figure out, you know, how do type designers figure out how their italics look compared to the Roman? How do they translate that? And I know that you don't just slant a Roman to make italics. There's a lot more nuances that go into it. That's kind of how I went down this path a few years ago originally. And so while researching this, I learned that italics originally, when they were first designed, were not even based off of Roman letter forms. And so they were actually based off of calligraphic handwriting. And they weren't meant to be a counterpart that we use them today. You know, we use italics for emphasis and all sorts of typographic reasons, but we never think about using only italics or italics being having the main stage. So I went down this rabbit hole and we are going to go back to <laughs> the late 1400s in Venice. It's the Venetian Renaissance. Um, and we find our friend Aldous Minutius, who is probably like the biggest player in the history of italics. And you spell his name, A-L-D-U-S, is his first name, Aldous, and last name, M-A-N-U-T-I-U-S. Well, I'm disappointed it isn't where the word minutia came from. I know, that would be really fun. But, you know, he he only has so many things that he brought us. But literally anybody named Aldous, I'm ready to listen. Yeah, no, I mean, he definitely lived up to his name. And so this guy, Aldous, our friend, he was a scholar. And he was a humanist, which is really important to the development of italics. And so a humanist means that he followed the philosophy of humanism, believing in value and agency of humans individually and collectively. It's a really great philosophy. What does that mean? Can you give me a human answer? Then instead of, you know, the religion or class or government telling what telling people what they can do, humans themselves have the intelligence and can use their brains individually and collectively to come up with new ideas and, you know, to help each other and to live harmoniously. Mm, I like that. That's kind of what I gather. That's definitely not a textbook definition. Sure. But it's like believing in the greater good and that humans have power and can come up with ideas and, you know, it's kind of like democracy, I guess. (laughs) Okay. Well, that just got strangely political, but yeah, okay. but moving on. It's it's more <laughs> philosophy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so he was the owner of Aldine Press, A-L-D-I-N-E. Okay. Which is actually famous for introducing italics. <laughs> so let's get to the story of how italics started. At the time, there was a script called Cancelleresca, and that was a chancery cursive popular in manuscripts and Minutius wanted to translate this into a typeface so that's kind of where we you know come full circle it's not based off of a roman typeface it's based off of handwriting what italics are Mm, yeah i think a lot of people might not be familiar with chancery as a term yeah so chancery is kind of an old style 
calligraphic script, and everyone might know it from a typeface on their computer called Apple Chancery, which I know is on Apple um, computers, but I think Windows also has it called Zapf Chancery, named after Herman Zapf. So that's something that most computers come with, and I'm going to get to that later, because that's some pretty interesting history as well. So we have some Chancery cursive. It's old style scripty stuff. Kind of looks like what you would imagine someone printing a label for an envelope that wants it to look like cursive. I feel like that's when that Chancery typeface is used a lot that I see. Yeah, that's fair. Okay. <laughs> um, like holiday cards. <laughs> Anyways, so we're still with Cancelleresca, which is this popular cursive. And so the reason why he wanted to make this cursive into typeface that we're now calling italics, there's actually two lores. There are two camps of people believing in two reasons why he actually did this, okay. which is really fascinating. And so when I was doing a lot of research online, the majority of camps think that he developed this italic typeface to suggest informality in editions designed for reading. So, you know, I think back then, some of the typefaces used in books were quite formal and rigid, and people weren't so familiar with reading them every day. And as we know, legibility is based on how often you see a typeface. So if you are mostly seeing handwriting in your everyday life, and then you pick up a book and it has this really rigid Roman look to it, it's gonna be harder to recognize the letter forms. Mm. And so by having, you know, a book that mimicked handwriting, people would more easily recognize letter forms and get through the books easily. That's interesting. Okay. Okay. That's one camp of why yeah. he did this. Then there's a second camp, <laughs> which um, is actually main. And I don't know how many, how popular it is. I do know that this lore of why we have italics is um, actually discussed in Philip Megg's History of Graphic Design, which is like the graphic design textbook that you read to figure out the history of graphic design. And lo and behold, his daughter taught me my History of Graphic Design class. Oh, interesting. And so she says, and I found an email correspondence I had with her my senior <laughs> year, actually, and, but it mimics what's, what's told in the textbook. And this, this reason is that italic type was developed to allow for more words per page. And there was approximately a 50% gain in words to fit per page rather than, you know, wide Roman upright characters. Shoot, that makes sense. Yeah, and thus leaving there being less paper and press work needed per book and to make it more affordable because, you know, there's less paper needed, less time spent, you know, handling the press. And that actually relates to his idea of being a humanist and making it more affordable and mm. having more people having access to education. Mm, interesting. And so italics in general in that theory will be equal to the expression of humanist philosophy. So there are your two camps. Super <laughs> interesting. It is juicy. And from there he worked with his punch cutter and type designer Francesco Griffo who cut the type and Griffo's famous for doing that. He also at some point I think tried to argue that he invented italics but the history books are not going with that theory. Such a jerk. <laughs> and so what's pretty interesting also about the original italics there were no capital letters. The capital letters they actually just used Roman capital letters. So if you actually look at really old text you'll see this with italic text, it'll be like capital letter A that's upright, and then everything else is kind of, you know, slanted in the typical italics. Um, and then he didn't make italic capital letters, but he did make over 65 ligatures. 
Which is so <laughs> Just like a type designer. This is where we all get it from. <laughs> I know. So that's where, that's, you know, he found it more important to mimic the casual handwriting in the lowercase than he did to make a matching set of capital letters. So that's, that's interesting. Hilarious. <laughs> Bring me back to where we are in modern day. In the 90s, Apple commissioned Chris Holmes, who was, I believe, a type designer for them, in 1993 to design Apple Chancery. And this is that font I was describing that's on all, you know, Apple computers. And the goal of this font was actually to test out how to use contextual alternates in font programming. So you can imagine in the 90s, there weren't many contextual alternates, which means that, you know, if you put a certain letter combination in a script that they connect nicely. That's what a contextual alternate would do. Like how an F next to a T, they both have this like crossbar in the middle mm-hmm. that if they're sitting next to each other, there'd be like a weird, like tiny, tiny gap. And mm-hmm. so type designers build a, a third character, like a second character that combines the two of them and squishes them together so it looks nice. Yeah, exactly. And you can imagine that issue becomes pretty common with cursive. When you have all these connecting letters, mm. you need kind of a little bit more customizations within the font programming. And so I think that's funny that Chancery, which brings us all the way back to the 1400s, was brought to life again in the 90s and, you know, is something that we see on most of our computers. So that's just my tidbit. There's a lot more of italic history out there. <laughs> But want to keep this short, want to keep nerd alert, you know, you know, relevant, but also succinct, succinct for this first, this first round. Dang, that's some depth too. That's like, I mean, I, I honestly went through all of art school without really taking any graphic design history. So this is like all new to me, which I just think is fascinating. And the way that it ties back together into what we're just so used to. I know, right? Right? We take it for granted, but, you know, there's pretty unique history to it, which I found very exciting. Thanks for researching that. That's super cool. That makes me excited for all the other, like, obscure things that you are going to find that we're going to learn about. It's going to be like small Atlas Obscura articles built into our podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I love them. That's awesome. That's So there's, uh, there's some history on the beginning of italics. How neat. Yeah, so I know we went a little bit long today, and we might sound, a, I, at least I might sound a little bit rusty from <laughs> no. not podcasting for a little bit, but we're excited you guys all came out to listen, and we're super excited to continue doing this. Yeah, thank you everybody for tuning in. This is super fun. We're both very excited to be hopping back next week. You can expect a fun one of these every week. We're going to do it to coincide with the weekly typographic newsletter which, you know, if you're finding this in some podcast app, you can get from the League of Movable Type. Just Google it. Even if you spell it wrong, you'll find us. Sign up for the newsletter. You'll get the podcast and the articles. And thank you, everybody, for being here with us. And thank you, Olivia. Thanks, Micah. All right. We'll see you all next week.